I know, I know you don't do it for any sort of accolades, and you're probably going to get mad at me later, but the, the reality is we love you guys, and we couldn't do this without you. So, praise God. Okay. You guys ready? I'm really, really uptight and nervous, if you can't tell. But let's, um, let's prepare our hearts for what God has for us in Ruth chapter 1. I've been going over this chapter uh, with, in the, the book with my men's study on Thursday nights, and it's just been a huge blessing. So I thought, maybe I'll draw some truths out a little bit more if I can. So hear now God's holy and perfect word. Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malin and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malin and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah." But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will go, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem 
at the beginning of barley harvest. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for each person here. Lord, I am nothing, and I know that I am nothing. But I ask that your word would be powerful this morning. That your truth would be proclaimed boldly. And that we would fear you. That we would love you. We would honor you. That we would seek to lift you up in our lives. As your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So according to 1-1, the story takes place in the time of the judges. And most of you guys know this. This was a 400-year period after Israel entered the promised land under Joshua. And before there were any kings in Israel, roughly around 1500 B.C. to 1100 B.C. The book of Judges comes just before Ruth in our English Bibles. And as you can see from his very last verse, what sort of kind of time and period this was. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, it was a very dark time in Israel. The people would sin. God would send enemies against them. The people would cry out for help, and God would send, mercifully, he would raise up a judge to deliver them. Again and again, the people rebelled, and from all outward appearances, God's purposes for righteousness and glory in Israel were failing. And what the book of Ruth does for us gives us a glimpse of the hidden work of God during the worst of times. Look at the last verse of Ruth in 4.22. It basically says, The child born to Ruth and Boaz during the period of the judges is Obed. Obed becomes a father of Jesse, and Jesse becomes a father of David, who led Israel to its heights of glory. Now, one of the main messages of this little book is that God is at work in the worst of times. And those worst of times could actually be our fault. Even through the sins of his people, he can and he does plot for their glory, for his ultimate glory. It was true at the national level, and we will see that it is true at the personal and family level too. God is at work in the worst of times. When you think he is farthest from you, or has even turned against you, the truth is that he is laying a foundation of stones of greater happiness perhaps in our lives, at least the future. So verses 1 through 5 really describe Naomi's misery. She's just miserable. In 1-1, there's a famine in Judah where Naomi and her husband Elimelech and her sons Malan and Kilian live. Now I looked Kilian up, that's how you pronounce it, so I had to look it up. But Naomi knows good and well who causes famine. God does. In Leviticus 26, 3 through 4, it says, if you walk in my statutes, And observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. So when the rains are withheld, it's the hard hand of God. There's no debate here according to Scripture. It is God's will and plan. Then there is the decision to sojourn to Moab. This is a pagan land with foreign gods according to Judges uh, 1.15 and 10.6. So this was really like playing with fire. Kind of like when we were younger and we would play with matches. Sooner or later you're going to get burned. 
God's like, this is really clear. You probably shouldn't do this. In fact, no, you shouldn't do this. But they went and did it anyways, and they're like, no, we're going to be okay. Playing with fire. God, I know what you've told me to do, but nah, I don't feel like doing that today. Interesting. See, God had called his people to be separate from the surrounding lands. So when Naomi's husband dies in verse 13, what could she feel but the judgment of God had followed her and added grief to famine? This is not very popular today. Because if somehow we needed to defend God and his actions and forget that he is a roaring lion, as in Amos 1-2, ready to pounce on the sin in our lives. Interesting. Then in 1-4, her two sons take Moabite wives. One named Orpah and one named Ruth. Now, we love Ruth. We think, man, I don't know if Killian did it or Balin did it, but he chose well, but really, she was a Moabite. So God wasn't like, I'm blessing this. They're like, no, I'm doing this in defiance of what God has commanded. And again, the hard hand of God falls. Verse 5 sums up Naomi's tragedy after 10 years of childless marriages. And both Malin and Killian died, so that the woman was left with her, without her two sons and her husband. So a famine, a move to, po- to pagan Moab, the death of her husband... The marriage of her sons to foreign wives and the death of her sons, blow after blow, tragedy after tragedy, these were potentially the cause of consequences of those decisions. But I'm not saying they fully were. I don't know. as, As Mike was alluding to, we don't know the hidden counsel of God, but perhaps. Because God is a holy God. Yes, he's our father, but he's holy. And we forget that sometimes. I don't want to make... I do want to make mention of something that sticks out to me here. And I'll put a little effort into describing it for you guys. But let's jump over to Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. Really quick and note a few things. The question I think we neglect to to ask as Christians is, why are we not punished more for our sins? You ever think about that? Like, what if we were? Why aren't we? See, Naomi seemed to understand this. Now, as Christians, we say that Christ has bore the weight of sin, of our sins on the cross, that this is the gospel truth we cling to. But what I'm wanting to draw out is the question of temporal judgment. Bad things that happen to us nationally. Bad things that happen within our family or within our personal lives. Now, listen to this. In Jeremiah 17, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the years of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Basically, if you trust in man, you will be cursed. That's pretty a profound truth that we often neglect. We forget that. 
No one wants to hear that, particularly in today's American church. We say things like, I can't be cursed as a Christian. I'm God's child. Nothing bad can happen to me. Almost like we never grow out of the mentality of immortality. In Jeremiah, Israel was bent on trusting in man, but claimed to hope in God. She trusted false prophets in Jeremiah 7, 4 and 8, sought help from foreign alliances, forgot about God's deeds of the past. And when you trust in man, your heart is turned away from the Lord. We forget that when we trust in men or anything else, besides the Lord for provision, for hope, then this is nothing less than idolatry. We are basically saying that God is not good enough, powerful enough, sovereign enough to see us through His terms. And in doing so, we violate the greatest commandment that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might from Deuteronomy 6.5. When the blessings of rain cease, a tree planted in the desert by a river of life always receives nourishment. Why am I mentioning this? Because Naomi is a perfect reflection and book to remind us to fear the Lord. We live as if we are children that should never be disciplined by our Father for our mistakes. It, as if we were, have some cosmic get-out-of-jail-free card, and when, when difficult things go our way, we are so surprised and our faith wanes. We have the mentality of teenagers. <laughs> I've got some teenagers. That's awesome. Now, if you're on social media, which I'm not recommending, some people watch shorts or TikTok videos of comedians making fun of their teenagers, and I find these very funny. I saw one recently that made me laugh. I'm not going to quote it because it wouldn't be appropriate. But you, basically, he was saying, you spend 18 years of your life. What do parents get back from raising children? Right? You spend 18 years of your life loving these kids, sacrificing for them. And what do you receive? What do you get in return? About 10 to 13 years of love. Think about that. After that, when the teenage years hit... We get resentment back. Then at the age of 20 to 25, you get love back depending on how much money you give them. <laughs> now, it's a funny thing, but I feel too many of us are like teenagers when it comes to the Lord. We want Him to do for us what we desire. I want to do what I want to do, Lord. Why don't you give me what I want? It doesn't make any sense. We demand that God recognizes our autonomy and that He bless our wayward decisions. And as Christian culture, we come up with new ways to worship Him or new words to describe God in ourselves. It's very similar to what we see in our culture. Groups of people demanding that we recognize them for their sin and there are parades celebrating this sort of thing. But the mentality is similar, I think. That teenage mentality. And we have to recognize that. We are not different than the rest of the world in this regard. Now, I'm a perfect parent. 
I don't make mistakes. Sarcasm. But if you have ever been out in public and you see a baby or maybe a toddler throwing a tantrum, and you didn't have your kids throw tantrums, automatically you place yourself on this pedestal of going, man, if I was that parent, you know what I would do? Right? What would we do? Well, we'd probably discipline them. We all throw tantrums when we don't get our way with the Lord. Is it any surprise that we get disciplined for doing the wrong thing? Because that's what a father does. And when a father comes down hard on his child, the child has a little bit of fear mixed with love. Like, whoa, you're bigger than me. I should probably listen. See, we have a free house by an ocean of God. Yet we build on sinking sand with no foundation. I think I've heard a parable about that. Hear me when I say that not everything bad that is happening in our lives is the cause of our sin. I in no way will say that my transplants or the death of my son was because of my own sin that I committed. And it was the Lord punishing me. I'm not saying that, but perhaps that had something to do with it. I don't know. I don't know the hidden counsel of God. Am I so quick to say that my sin in my life does not deserve those things? If we want to talk about what we actually deserve, if the lens of Scripture is our, the glasses that we see, we deserve nothing but eternal and temporal judgment. We deserve death. And we are so quick to say that the wages of sin is death and that the gospel truth of Jesus Christ does away with the eternal consequences of sin in reconciling us to the Father. But what are the wages of sin temporarily or temporally? Because it's true that the death of Christ reconciles us to God and that we have a home waiting for us in heaven. That every single mistake we make in this life is truly washed away, as far as the east is from the west. But the consequences of our sin causes us to recognize that we serve a holy God and that He's calling us to pursue Him in holiness and that there will be consequences to our sin here in this world, not eternally, praise God. And yet behind the mistakes of Naomi resides a God that was still intimately involved, as he's intimately involved in our lives, behind our mistakes, behind our sin, behind our gluttony, our pride, our grossness of how we choose to spend our time or resources, is a God that is still intimately involved with us. But he has not created us out of his great plan and love for our glory, but for his. And God will not be mocked. Nor will he allow us to keep erecting the idols in our lives. He loves us too much. Sometimes he sends things our way to tear them down. Truly, he never left Naomi or forsook her. And neither will he do that with any of his children. Naomi may have understood this. I'm not saying that God is so beyond our understanding as to allow her husband and son's death to serve many, many purposes. But what I'm saying that there are indeed consequences to our sinful behavior that we have got to reckon with. And Naomi saw the hand of God in her life. And she could have been reflecting on the previous decisions 
of her husband and her family that she made that perhaps led to this moment. And I wonder, when we pray for forgiveness before the service, do we find ourselves similar to Naomi in recognizing the consequences of our sin, asking for help and forgiveness, or is our heart merely asking God to remove the consequences of our sin and not really repenting for the sin that we have done against the Lord? So now we see Naomi's attempts to turn back Ruth and Orpah. In verse 6, Naomi gets word that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. So she decides to return to Judah. She finally decides to go back home when her trust in men has failed. Her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, go with her partway, it seems. But then in verse 8 through 13, she really tries to persuade them to go back home. I think there are three reasons why the writer spends so much time and space to Naomi's effort to Ruth to turn back Ruth and Orpah. First, we see the scene emphasizes Naomi's misery. Example, in verse 11, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. In other words, Naomi has nothing to offer them. Her condition is far worse than, their, than, than theirs. If they try to be faithful to her and the name of the, 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 their husbands, they will find nothing but pain and misery following Naomi. So she concludes at the end of verse 13, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Is she right to conclude this? Oh, that we may have some of Naomi's theology running through our veins. To me, when I study this chapter, the striking thing is that God, that we do not see God this way. Was it Naomi's bitterness that led her to these things? Oftentimes when we go through trials, and those trials seem to dictate our theology and cause us in a, in a fleshly or emotional way to see God as different than depicted in the Bible. We make God in our own image, and we second-guess all the truths laid out before us in Scripture. Why? I think part of the reason, I surmise, is that we do not fear God like Naomi learned to. Like Israel and Jeremiah, we tend to entrust ourselves to certain people in the world. Look at the way which some Christians preach about conservatism, yet neglect discipleship. Or having our hope in military powers, doctors or health, employers or jobs for an increase in financial stability, or any manner of things. We entrust ourselves to friendships, to family. We become codependent on others as if they were more than what they are. All of this is idolatrous. And is there any wonder at the state of so many of our lives? Maybe the state of our church. I do think it pertinent to walk through these truths as we come to Christ and know our future home that there will be no more tears. No more consequences because they have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. But sometimes the tears we shed in this life is our fault. Sometimes. The second reason why the writer, I think, spends so much time is because he wants to show an Israelite custom. Verses 8-11 through 11 is to prepare for a custom in Israel which is going to turn everything around for Naomi in the following chapters. And it's beautiful. The custom was that when an Israelite husband died, his brother or near relative was to marry the widow and continue the brother's line found in Deuteronomy 25. 
Naomi is referring to this custom in verse 11 when she says that she has no sons to marry Ruth and Orpah. She thinks it's hopeless for Ruth and Orpah to remain committed to the family name. That was a big deal. The family name. Which tribe are you a part of? It showed them as the people of God. So she doesn't remember evidently that there is another relative named Boaz who might perform the duty of a brother. There's a lesson here. When we have decided that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness. I mean, this happens countless times in counseling. Why? It's in part to justify our feelings of betrayal. It's those tantrums that we're throwing. Bitterness, our fleshly sense of justice. We become so bitter that we can't see the rays of light peeping around the clouds and in our circumstances. And when I first got the branch, some of you know I had shingles. It's really fun to say. I feel like I should wear like a scarlet S on my forehead when I had shingles here. And after shingles, because my immune system is so amazingly horrible, I got something called post-herpetic neuralgia. It was fun if you're into that sort of thing, but it put me out of work more than a month. And I bemoaned the pain. And I hated just sitting there, lying in bed, unable to do anything because I'd just gotten here. But I forgot, and I had really no idea that behind this act, God would show me some amazing truths about church that I had forgotten over the course of years. I'd been a pastor for 15, 16 years before I got here. And God had showed me some incredible truths that really healed me during that time. He showed me what an elder board is. Some of us are still on. Amazing men. It renewed my faith in elders because every church that I had been a part of, most of them, they were mega churches. And the elders were there because they made a lot of money. And I thought, well, that's how church is. And I came here and the elders actually loved Jesus. It was weird. And they pursued Christ and they wanted to honor Christ. And that really renewed my faith in being in an elder board. Not to call him out, but my Greg was instrumental in this as he befriended me. This whole process was, was so weird to me because I learned things about how a pastor should be. Pastor Paul. About my own ministry experience. All these things I could talk about. How much I love Branch of Hope. What it has done for me individually. But I would have never understood that had I not gone through those things. Did I enjoy it at the time? No. But thinking about my life now, I have to ask, why don't things like that happen more frequently? Grace upon grace. Grace. Grace stays the hand of God in such a way as each thing we experience or go through is for His glory, for his, during His time, for His good children. He knows intimately what I can bear and is in control of all. In the midst of trials, it's easy to think of God, that God is against us, just like Naomi. But we forget that behind that action is a gracious God, not giving us over to death. So we're still breathing. God is gracious, because we deserve death. He conquered death on the cross when he sent his own son to die for us, his children. 
It was God who broke the famine and opened the way home. It was God who preserved a kinsman to continue Naomi's line. It was God who constrains Ruth to stay with Naomi. But Naomi is so embittered by God's hard providence that she can't see clearly His mercy and work in her life. Can that be said of you? See, I can sit here with every single one of you. We can, like, let's, let's for the next year, I'm going to meet with every single one of you, and we can actually spend a lot of time, even in the midst of your trials, we can make a huge list of things that you can be thankful for still amidst your pain and suffering. We made a huge list. Naomi didn't have someone like that, but God still showed his mercy. Because why? Our God is holy, but our God is merciful as well. Next, we see the reason why he spent so much time is because of Ruth's faithfulness. He wanted to show us Ruth's faithfulness to make her faithfulness to Naomi appear amazing. Verse 14 says that Orpah kissed Naomi goodbye. She's like, peace, I can't do this. I'd rather have my best life now. I want to go and I want to follow the crowd. But Ruth is like, I am sticking here. I'm staying here. I'm staying by your side. She clings to her. Not even the entre- another entreaty in verse 15 can get Ruth to leave. I mean, this is crazy. This is all the more amazing after Naomi's grim description of the future that they would have together. Ruth stays with her in spite of an apparent hopeless future of widowhood and childlessness and no say in the world. Naomi painted the future black, stark, painful, horrible, and Ruth took her hand and walked right into it with her. The amazing words of Ruth are found in verses 1, 16 through 17. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. I hesitate, but not really to say this, this is God's ideal woman. The more you ponder these words, the more amazing they become. This isn't to judge anybody here saying, here's the standard. I'm just saying what Scripture is saying. The more we think about these things, Ruth's commitment to her destitute mother-in-law is simply astonishing. First, it meant leaving her own family and land, her comfort, Second, it means as far as she knows, a life of widowhood and childlessness because Naomi has no man to give. And if she married a non-relative, her commitment to Naomi's family would be lost. So that commitment would be nothing. Her character would be nothing. Third, it means going to an unknown land with a new people, new customs, new language. She got out of her comfort zone. It was very scary. Don't downplay this. And fourth, it was commitment even more radical than marriage. Where you die, I will die and there be buried. In other words, she will never return home, not even if Naomi dies. But the most amazing commitment of all of this is that your God will be my God. Now, Naomi has just said in verse 13, 
The hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Naomi's experience of God was bitterness. But in spite of this, Ruth forsakes her religious heritage and makes the God of Israel her God. I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy. Perhaps she had made that commitment years before when her husband maybe had told her of the great hand of God and the love of God for Israel and his power of the Red Sea and his glorious purposes for Israel. Somehow or other, Ruth had come to trust in Naomi's God in spite of Naomi's bitter experiences. Now here we have a picture of God's ideal woman. Faith in God that sees beyond present bitter circumstances or setbacks. Freedom from the securities and comforts of the world. Courage to venture out into the unknown and the strange. Radical commitment to the relationships appointed by God. Oh, the American church would have such a woman. Don't even get me started on the men. But that's not in here, so we'll move on. Next, we see Naomi's theology, right and wrong. So Ruth and Naomi return together to Bethlehem, to Judah. But she responds in verse 20 and 21, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? What do you make of Naomi's theology here? Part of it, I would take Naomi's theology any day over the sentimental views of God which dominate evangelical websites and books, what I hear from the pulpit. See, Naomi is unshaken about three things. God exists, God is sovereign, and God has afflicted her. The problem with Naomi, though, is that she has forgotten another story that we've read about earlier in the Bible by the man of a name... By, the, by, by Joseph, who also goes into a foreign country. But he was sold as a slave. He was framed by an adulteress and put in prison. He had every reason to say with Naomi, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. But he kept his faith and turned it all for his personal good, for the glory of God and Israel's national good. The key lesson at the end of Joseph's story is in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as there are today. See, Naomi is right to believe in a sovereign, almighty God who governs the affairs of the nations and families and gives each day its part of pain and pleasure. But she needs to open her eyes to the, the, sin, the signs of his merciful purposes. It was God who took away the famine and opened a way home. Notice the delicate touch of hope at the end of verse 22. It said it was at the beginning of barley harvest. If Naomi could only see that this was what this was going to mean. Not only that, Naomi needs to open her eyes to Ruth. And I said it before, I'll say it again. When going through trials, it's so easy and tempting to take her eyes off the Lord. But with eyes obsessively fixed on the king of kings, she would have seen Ruth as the greatest gift ever. What a blessing. Yet as she and Ruth stand before the people of Bethlehem, Naomi says in verse 21, 
The Lord has brought me back empty. And I wonder if Naomi understood the fear of the Lord in light of the blessings that she received. For in a few days, she was going to have her world rocked with such grace and mercy as only found in the cross. We would say to her, you are so weary with the night of adversity that you can't see the dawn of rejoicing. What would she say if she could see that in Ruth she would gain a grandchild and that this grandchild would be the grandfather of the greatest king of Israel and that this king of Israel would foreshadow the king of kings, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. I think she would say, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let me conclude with four summary lessons. A few notes of application I think we all need to remember. Number one, God's sovereign rule. God the Almighty reigns in all of the affairs of men. He rules the nations according to Daniel 2.21, and he rules families. His providence extends from the U.S. Congress to our kitchen. We have to remember the story of Naomi and Ruth here. Whatever else they doubted, they never doubted that God was involved in every single part of their lives and that none could stay his hand, according to Daniel 4. He gives rain and he takes rain. He gives life and he takes life. In him, we move and have our being. One writer says, Nothing from a toothpick to the Taj Mahal is rightly understood except in relation to God. He is the all-encompassing, all-invading reality of our lives. Naomi was right, and we should join her in this conviction. God the Almighty reigns in all of the affairs of men. But as Christians, we know that God, He is sovereign reigning in the affairs of men, that this should give us a healthy fear and respect of God. The Bible isn't written for God, but for us. And if we choose to disobey, if our old man or old woman rears its ugly head, we must mortify the flesh, as Paul says. We don't do this because we're trying to earn our salvation. That's not the point. We don't pursue holiness. We don't go to church. We don't read the Bible. We don't memorize scripture. We don't hang out with Christian friends. We aren't influenced by those people so that we can earn favor from God for our salvation. We do it because the Bible calls us to because this is the wisest way to live. The world is telling you how you should live. Teenagers, hear me when I say this. The world is lying to you and you're believing it. The Word of God is the only thing that we should be focused and in, in, in submitting to in our lives. But in this, we must do our greatest work, even more than avoiding sin. The work of the Christian is to trust God more and more, even when His hard hand comes down upon us. Picture this. Outside the doors of this church, as you guys leave today, there is a cross with your name on it that you've got to pick up before you go to your cars. There is a cross that you have to bear today. 
Because there is a cost to discipleship, a cost to following Christ, and our payment is the currency of trust. The second thing, it's really raining hard outside right now. Boy, we are being blessed today. The rain of God. The simple definition of providence talks about the mystery of providence. God's providence essentially means foresight or making provision beforehand. That's a simple definition. So God's providence is sometimes very hard. God had dealt bitterly with Naomi. At least in the short run, it could only feel that way. It could only feel like bitterness. Perhaps someone will say it was all owing to the sin of going to Moab and of marrying foreign wives. Maybe so, but is that why her husband's, her husband and sons died? This seems harsh. I don't have the answer to the why. I don't know why things are happening in our lives. None of us know why they're happening in our lives. But God is not worried about pacing in heaven, wrinkling his hands, and getting counsel from Michael. What do I do? God is a lot bigger than we realize. And he may be allowing things in our lives because of the consequences of our sin or because of the consequences of someone else's sin. But sin is in this world. And we've got to deal with it by trusting the Lord, even in the midst of our circumstances. But not necessarily... I do want to say this. Psalm 34, 18 through 19 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Isn't that interesting? Many of the afflictions are of the righteous, but we are only righteous because of the faith that God has given us before the foundation of the world is set, not due to our goodness, but due to his love, that faith being in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament promises that believers will escape affliction in this life. You may be going through trials because of nothing that you've done. But suppose Naomi's trials was owing to her disobedience. This is what I want to just focus on. This makes the story so insane because it shows that God is willing and able even to turn his judgments into joy. To me, this is one of the most wonderful truths. If Ruth was brought into this family by sin, it's crazy to think and astonishing that she has made the grandmother of David an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Don't ever think that the sin of your past means that there is no hope for your future. Let me say that again. Don't ever think that the sin of your past means that there's no hope for your future. I could end on that. I probably, I'm not going to. <laughs> the third thing that we see is God's purposes. This leads to the third lesson. Not only does God reign in all the affairs of men, not only is his providence sometimes hard, but all his works, uh, all his works, his purposes are for the good and happiness of his people for his glory. Who would have imagined that in the worst of times, the period of the judges, God was quietly moving in one little family to bring about Christ, to be involved in that? Who would have thought? I mean, that's, 
That's, that's fascinating. He didn't use world leaders. He didn't use famous people at the time. He uses a little family that was so disobedient. That gives me hope and encouragement. I hope you're encouraged by this. Our Father who sent His Son to die for us was intimately working for our good through this family by preparing the way for Jesus Christ. But not only that, He was working to fill Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and their friends with great joy. If anything this summer has fallen on you to make your future look hopeless, learn from Ruth Learn from Naomi that God is right now at work for you to give you a future and a hope. Trust Him. Wait patiently. The ominous clouds are big with mercy and will break forth with blessings on your head, whether in this life or the one to come. Last thing we see is Ruth's freedom. If you trust the sovereign goodness and mercy of God to pursue you all the days of your life, and you're free like Ruth. When you believe in the sovereignty of God, and that He loves to work mightily for those who trust Him, it gives a freedom and joy that can't be shaken no matter what this world throws at us. The book of Ruth gives a glimpse into the hidden work of God during the worst of times. This book gives us hope. It points to Jesus Christ as the redeemer of his children. But yeah, there's consequences. But guess what? Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Really? Do you know this God that will work even in the midst of our sin? It was not Naomi's actions that caused some sort of owing from God on God's part, because she was so perfect, it was quite the opposite. Despite the mistakes of life, despite the frailty of mankind, despite us being enemies of God before we knew Him, He makes a way through Jesus Christ. Do not forget the blessing of Christ. Sometimes the displeasure of God manifests in our lives. We, have, we never have the answer as to why we are going through trials, even that's the first question we always ask or why we are being disciplined. Behind it all, though, is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we cling to. Jesus is everything. Even in the midst of that displeasure, Naomi and Ruth remind us that we have a father who may discipline us, but is still a good father who sent his son to die for us. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. Lord, I know that there was a lot of me in this, and I pray, Lord, that you would remove that in everybody's memory, that you would only help us to remember what your Holy Spirit is working on us through your word, through Ruth 1. Lord, let those truths sink deeply in us. There's so much in here that can be preached on throughout months, and yet I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you as a holy God, to fear you rightly, as the beginning of knowledge, that fools despise wisdom and discipline. I pray, Lord, that we would learn to fear you more, to know that you are an almighty God, but through that fear, Lord, that we would learn to love you more, to know that you have made a way 
that we will not be forever judged, but that we have a home in heaven because of Jesus Christ. And we can sing and worship and celebrate, longing for that day when sin has no mastery over us, Lord, and when there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more mistakes, and no more sin. Until that day comes, Lord, come quickly. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.